As you're turning to John 15, um, remember that this, these lessons are in the context of spiritual warfare. And last week, as we looked at the armor that Paul tells us that we have to, to, to have on, that um, our offensive weapon is prayer, that the way that we as believers fight is on our knees. And last week we talked uh, about how Paul in, in Ephesians 6 has directed us to, to, to fight in prayer. And this week we come, turn to John 15, which is, has an amazing verse. I've, I, I've heard this verse called the genie in a bottle verse. Um, the, the, the text that everything will pivot on says, If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, then ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. What an amazing verse. That is an amazing text. In fact, I've heard this particular text preached on a hundred times, and the vast majority of sermons I've ever heard on this text are people trying to explain why it doesn't work. Because we don't see this in our life. And oftentimes, especially in an American or a Western context, we think that what this means is I can pray for a new truck and a pony and God's got to hook me up. And so I want us to dig deeply into this text, because this, and we're going to park here for a few weeks, um, because this is an important thing. This is, this is a pivot point in the Christian faith. Now, I want us to, to put it in context, so we're going to read the, the entirety of the text. We're primarily going to focus on 1, 2, 4, 5, and 7 through 11. But I want to read through this first section, 1 through 17, so bear with me. This is Jesus talking, so if you have a red, uh, uh, red letter Bible, this is all in red. Jesus is speaking and he says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch of mine that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you're clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. <coughs> Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. From apart, for apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples." As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as, as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, 
that someone lays down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants. For the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you. And appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. And that your fruit should abide. So that whatever you ask the father in my name. He may give it to you. These things I command you, so that you will love one another. Now as I read that text, it seems very clear to me that the point of this text is about bearing fruit. In fact, Jesus, after he says the the verse where, If you abide in me and my word abides in you, ask whatever it will, it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit. The whole point of what Jesus is talking about here is that we bear fruit. And so the question comes up, uh, as I've heard this text preached on, as I studied commentaries this week on this particular text, it seems to me that there's a dichotomy. Is is Jesus talking about the idea of bearing fruit as in the fruit that comes into our life in the Spirit? Which um, Sunday, if you're not at the race or you're not at the women's, Retreat, you will, you will hear in great detail in Galatians chapter 5 it says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. Paul in Galatians chapter 5 juxtapositions the works of the flesh, which he lists out, uh, and works of this, the, the fruit of the flesh, what happens, what naturally comes out of you if you're living in the flesh, and the fruit of the Spirit. What naturally comes out of you if you're living in the Spirit. And he lists those out. That love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That's what naturally comes out of us if we're walking in the Spirit. It's a litmus test that Paul gives. Is, Paul, is Jesus here talking about that kind of fruit? Or is he talking about the fruit of people coming to Christ? Throughout the New Testament, the idea of bearing fruit is, talks about the idea that when I lead somebody to Christ, that I'm bearing fruit. Jesus uses this in John chapter 4 when he uses the, the example. He's, Jesus is there. The disciples are trying to get him to eat. Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, someone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life. So that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. That idea of bearing fruit is people who are outside of the faith coming to Christ. Jesus tell, tells the parable of the, the soils where the farmer goes and he, he casts out the, the seed. And some bear fruit. Some tenfold, some a hundredfold. And so that idea in a lot of Jesus' parables is that fruit is people who are outside of the faith coming to Christ. And so the question is, as Jesus here in John 15 is talking about, is it the fruit of the Spirit, the way that we as believers will change? Or is it talking about people who are outside the faith coming to Christ? 
And I think beyond a shadow of a doubt, I think that the answer to the question is yes. As we live like Jesus, as the fruit of the Spirit come oozing out of us, that love, joy, peace, goodness, gentleness, kindness, as we start acting like we're called to act, other people are going to come to Christ. And so there isn't a, a, a break there. There isn't a dichotomy there between those two ideas. Oftentimes we act like people that nobody would want to be like. If I'm walking around all the time like a sourpuss and acting like, I guess it's an okay day. Hey, you want to meet Jesus? He's done a lot for me, I guess. Well, nobody wants to get to know that, Jesus. Or if I act hateful in everything that I do. Why, that doesn't, doesn't lead anybody to want to be a part of the kingdom that I'm involved with. If you look at those fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace. Oh, how our society is starved for real peace. Patience. Now that's convicting. Kindness, goodness. I've really been focused in my own Bible study here on faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, discipline. Is that what marks our lives? Because when those things mark our lives, we act different than the world. That's not a list that the world lives up to. And so people are going to be attracted to something that makes us different. So often in the church, we try to act so much like the world that we can attract the world, but we forget that there's, if there's nothing different about us, why would anybody want to change? And so I think that when the commentators or the, the, the preachers try to divide that, well, this is the fruit of the Spirit, no, this is people getting saved, I think that's silly. There is no division. I think that they're both one and the same, that as we're bearing the fruit of the Spirit, that people are going to be... N- drawn to a savior that can change us that way so jesus here this whole text is talking about bearing fruit and the father is glorified when we bear fruit and so in the text it's still every time i read it it's shocking if you abide in me and my words abide in you Ask whatever you will, and it will be done for you. How? What a promise. What an amazing thing for the God-man who spoke only truth. In fact, he said he was truth for him to say. Now, if you were to go to, down to the Christian bookstore and get a name-it-claim-it kind of book, it's going to make you think that what this is talking about is health, wealth, that you can, can pray for and your, your hair will have more bounce and your car will crank on the first crank. And that is not at all what it's talking about. Because the very first thing that I notice is that this is conditional. Jesus isn't just saying, he doesn't just say, ask whatever you will and it will be done for you. So it's conditional. The very first condition is, if you abide in me. And there's no way tonight that I can even really touch on that idea. Uh, there are whole books that are written, and I would, I would commend to you Andrew Murray's book called Abide. Um, it is a great te- book that deals with, with this idea. 
But I can, I can explain it this way. I had, today had this happen. I have a, a white oak tree that I planted in, in my yard. And I have babied and, and I planted it right before the big drought. And so I would go take gallon jugs out there with water every day and water it and baby it and, and try, to, try to treat it well. And it's gotten up to where it's, it's about six feet now. And I, I, last weekend when I put out pine straw, kind of pruned it and trimmed it. And it's just now getting to where I like it. And I came out this morning and it was laying over on its side. And I'm like, what has happened to my tree? And I went running out, out there, and I, I'm looking in the, to see if somebody backed over it. I'm like, whoever backed over it? And I'm thinking of the people that came to the house in the last 24 hours. And I'm like, Lindsey Douglas was here, and William had one of his buddies here. I bet he, but there's no, nothing in the, in the, no, I just laid out pine straw, so there's nothing in the, in the pine straw, so nobody drove through it. And so I almost, with tears running down my eyes, went out there and looked. And just under the soil line, that, the tree probably two years ago had been separated from the roots. It had just a, barely a little bit hanging on. But if you looked at it, Saturday, it looked healthy. It had put on leaves. It looked like it was coming right along. But underneath the soil, it didn't have a root structure that was going to let it be healthy. And I think that's exactly what Jesus is talking about here. We, there are people that look like on the outside they got everything right. They look like when we see them here at church or we see them out in town, their marriage looks healthy. They look like they've got it all together. They got all the answers. R.C. Sproul said that our culture, we're a cut flower culture. And what he meant by that is this, that if flowers are cut and put in a vase, they look really pretty. But they've been separated from the roots and there's no life in them. They're dead. And in just a little bit of time, all it takes is time, they'll look withered. And then they'll be good for nothing but to throw away. Exactly what Jesus said here. The important thing is not, and that's what Paul is screaming in in the book of Galatians. The important thing is not the outward stuff that we do. The outward stuff that we do shows whether or not there's roots over time. But the most important thing is that Jesus is where we are sustained. That Jesus is the one that we draw our strength from, that we draw our joy from. What are you living for? The way that we say it to the kids all the time is, who is your identity in? Is your identity in that you're a jock because someday you're going to be 47 and you're not going to be a jock anymore and you're going to be fighting those belt loops. So if that's where your identity is, there are few things more pathetic than a 35-year-old guy still wearing his Leatherman jacket. I'm just saying. And all of us know one of those guys. If you're, is that your identity? Is your identity in, if your identity is in anything, it will fail you. Even church. But if your identity is in Jesus, it's never going to fail you. If your roots are attached to Him, that's never going to go wrong. Even if everything in this world falls apart, you lose your house, you lose your job, you lose your health. 
You're laying in a hospital bed not knowing how you're going to pay the bills. If you're tied into Jesus and He is where you're sustained and He is where the, that's the source of your joy, He is where the source of your life comes from, nobody can take that. So that with Paul we could say, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. Even if you take my life, that just means that I'm closer to Him. And that doesn't come from Anything other than that day to day to day to day, which is why I love the fact that, that Jesus here uses the term abide. So often we make our faith about an emotional moment. Come down to the altar, we cry, sign a card, we do the thing. But real Christianity is fought Day by day by day by day by day. And there are days when you're up, there are days when you're down. But it doesn't matter because you always run to Jesus. That's what faith is. When I preached in CR Sunday and I was saying, you know, I've always kind of had this idea that I get saved down here, I'm a heathen, and then I'm going to be like Jesus up here, and the Christian walk is this way. That hadn't been my experience. My experience has been that the Christian walk's been this way. Right? And the deal is that I'll fail me. But Jesus won't fail me. And so we abide in Him. And as we abide in Him, as we abide in Him, then the things of this world do wither and they lose their allure because they're going to take me away from Him. And so, the theological term is antinomianism. I know that's a fancy $3 word, but what that means is saying that because Jesus has forgiven me, then I can do whatever I want to do. Well, that's, that, this idea of abiding in Jesus doesn't allow that to occur. If we go back to the example that we used when I was preaching through Galatians, if I've got a steak in front of me, I'm not tempted to eat uh, crystals. I know I picked on crystal in that sermon. Because I've got something better. That's how the Christian faith is supposed to work. That we see the depth and the richness and the beauty that is in Jesus. So that the hunger and the craving for the other stuff goes away. If we make our Christian walk about that external stuff, I'm going to look like a Christian. It's never going to work. The, the flesh is too strong. This world is too powerful. But if we make our Christian walk about a relationship with a Savior and about abiding in Him like that vine... I know that uh, when we lived at the farm in Coleman, I, I experimented and tried uh, to learn how to graft. Um, because when I didn't know this at the time, that if you get a grape with a seed in it, you can't spit that seed out and plant grapes. Um, that's weird, I know, but that's just how modern farming works. And so what you actually do is you have what's called a root stock, which is the big part that comes up, and then you actually cut outside of the, the flesh of that root stock and get down into the middle and you make a hole. And then you take the type of grape that you want and you whittle and you get that pointy. And you, point, you push that into that root stock 
so that it can draw its juice out of it, and then you tape it. And so it pulls it tight up against. And it's got this outside force of the tape that you, you get it to pull up against. And I would say from my experience with grafting, because I didn't know what I was doing, it was about half and half that you would you'd graft that, that root. Because I was trying to grow some seedless grapes, and because all the grape vine, grapes that we had were these really pretty dark grapes, but they were filled with seeds. And so Emily and Molly were little then, and we would go out and pick grapes, and they would sit there out there in the yard the whole time going, <laughs> so I thought it'd be fun if we got some seedless grapes. And so I thought that was just a beautiful picture of what exactly what Jesus is talking about here. If that plant, no matter how pretty it is, or no matter how good it looks, if it doesn't start drawing the, the moisture and drawing its nourishment from that rootstock, it was going to die. And in the beginning, it needed some outside force pushing on it to pull it up against that rootstock. You couldn't just stick it in there and then walk away. They actually make some tape that's just for it. It's got wire that runs through it, and it pulls that, that, and that, what a great picture of the Christian faith. When people come to Christ, we need to be that tape that's helping push them into that rootstock so that the temptation to just fall off and do what you want to do again isn't there. And then as it starts learning to grow, get its nourishment from that rootstock, then it grows and puts out. The other thing that I learned about grapes that scares me from this, these verses is that with grapes, you prune them heavy. I, I had a guy that, that, you don't tell anybody this, but he worked for Auburn, uh, that came out to, to teach me how to, how to prune the, my vines. And I had, I had a, a three old barbed wire fences lines that went out and that I had them all wrapped around there and he he comes out and gets his clippers and before he was gone I just had a bunch of naked roots it looked like out there he cut it all off and I'm saying why are we doing this well because the 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 grapes only grow on that last year's growth and so if you've got a whole bunch of woody stuff going out here you're not going to get any fruit all you've got is vine and the point of growing grapes is the fruit not to have a pretty vine and so he pruned the far out of it. That's, that's the technical term. Um, he pruned the far out of it. And so the, in two years, I had a bunch of big, fat, beautiful grapes. Well, we don't like it when the Father prunes the far out of us. Because oftentimes, what has happened is, is we're clinging to things that aren't going to help us. And we're holding tight to them. And the Father has to get those things out of our hands so that we can bear fruit. The Father has to, to come in and prune so that we bear more fruit. And we don't like being pruned. There was a lady that came into the church yesterday. Um, she's, was, uh, it, was, it was actually, in a, in a lot of ways, a very neat thing. Because when she walked in, uh, I really thought, oh, here, here comes somebody and they're going to they're gonna want us to pay a bill. And they're going to they're gonna have a list of, of things they want from the church. And all she wanted was, she said, my life has been destroyed because of the decisions that I've made and I need help. And so Anne was trying to explain to her how she needed to be reading her Bible and, and how she, she said that she had gotten saved a long time ago. She just haven't, hasn't lived it. She's never been taught anything. She didn't know how to read the Bible. She didn't know how to pray. And so Anne was trying to teach her that stuff and show her that stuff. And while Anne was talking, I, I sat there for a little while and Anne said, sometimes God allows things to come into our life to teach us 
And she gave an example, and I said, well, Ann, I just wish you would hurry up and learn whatever it is that God's trying to teach you so that we quit having to deal with this stuff together. And I said that jokingly because I know God's trying to teach me a lot more than he's trying to teach her. But my point is that God oftentimes brings things into our life that we don't want. I was talking to somebody today who was like, it seems like every appliance in my house is broken down. And every time I get in the car, something else is broken. I can't take it anymore. You ever feel like that? And so we look to see what the Father is pruning from our life so that we grow. So that we can bear fruit. And so the first aspect that we have to see is this idea of abiding. And if we're abiding in Christ, then our prayer requests are not going to be for the stuff that's going to hinder our growth. The great lie in the health and wealth theology is that health and wealth is what we need. That's the huge lie. Jesus says the most damaging thing you can have in your life is wealth. It's easier for a, for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than a wealthy man to make it into heaven. So why would God just give us something that he knows is detrimental to our soul? And I know some of you are thinking, man, I must be super spiritual. Some of you are working that out. So the first one is, if you abide in me. The second one is, and my words abide in you. And that means that we are feeding on God's word. That is how he feeds us. That is how we grow. That is how we're nourished. And that word abiding in us is so important. I used to have a discipline in my life that I have... I have allowed in my busyness to go by the wayside that I have picked back up. I've started this two weeks ago, carrying this around. I'm trying to rememorize Romans chapter 8 so that God's word is abiding in me. I think that the events of this week have shown that the most important thing that I can do for this church is personal sanctification and personal holiness. And the only way that I'm going to become more like Jesus is if His words abide in me. And if I'm busy memorizing and meditating on God's Word, I ain't got time to study a bunch of other stuff. And so God's Word abiding in us convicts us. There's a young man that I, I, I meet with on Friday mornings that, that came to me and said, I just I don't know how to study God's Word. Will you teach me how to do that? And so we started meeting together, and I... I was telling him the same thing that I had told you guys that I read through the book of Proverbs and, I, and that particular day Proverbs had just beat me up and I said isn't it funny that I've been doing this on and off for 30 years that every day like t- today's the the 25th so this evening I'll read Proverbs 25 and it never fails to convict me and say God uses his word to put it on my heart and say hey In the book of Hebrews, it says uh, to the church that the, it was written to, to obey the leaders that God has put over you. And then, for me, some of the scariest words in the Bible, for they will give an account for your soul. 
And I just this afternoon listened to uh, a sermon from the Get Together for the Gospel Conference where the pastor who was preaching said, it was, it's a pastor's conference, said, all of you are concerned about the empty seats in your sanctuary and what you need to be concerned about are the seats that have people sitting in them because you're not going to give an account for the empty seats. And that convicted me. I fight the urge for my self-worth to be based on how many people are filling this auditorium on Sundays. I'm just telling you my heart. And I'm not going to give an account for the people who aren't here, but everybody who is here, it scares me to death that I'm going to stand in front of Jesus and be asked, what did you do to make sure that Bruce Lockmiller was more like Jesus than when he started going to your church? And if all I can do is list off a bunch of events, God help my soul. And that convicts me. And that makes me fall on my knees and say, oh God, protect me. Oh God, let me be the man of God that you've called me to be because I'm a far cry from it. God's word never fails to convict. And I can tell you after spending time in God's word, and God's word putting its finger on my heart and saying, you wicked man, when I get up off my knees, the last thing I'm praying for is a new truck and a pony. God's word doesn't allow that kind of silliness. And so Jesus is saying that if my words abide in you and my word is working in you and you are drawing your sustenance and your identity from me, the things that you're going to be asking for are in in line with his will. And then at that point, we literally have a promise from our Savior that we can ask for whatever and he will do it. And I can tell you that in my own life, I've never seen that not work. That it seems to me that whenever I'm in the fight, whenever I'm doing what I'm supposed to do, and we're doing it to reach other people with the gospel, Donna will come to me and say, we need somebody to work in the nursery. And I'm run slap out of names. And we pray, God, would you bring somebody to fill that need? God always answers that prayer. Oh, no, I don't know what we're going to do. We need, we need some people to help with the youth. This happened to me. This very thing happened to me. We didn't know what we were going to do for the college and career folks. We, I, I came to the staff and I said, I am sick and tired of doing a graduation Sunday and having 15 to 17 kids sitting right in there and then never seeing those kids again. Because they leave here and they go to college and they go do whatever and they're just gone. We've got to have something that we can reach them where we can speak into their lives. We've got to do that. And so, so the staff and I started praying on a regular basis. God raised somebody up. I had a man and his wife, and I honestly don't recall ever having met them before in the church. I'm not saying that the man's lying for saying that he's been going here. I just had never met him. Matt Baker came to me and said, I want to get plugged in, and I just don't know where it is. And so I said, well, let's, why don't you help out with Garrett in the youth area? And, and what I was thinking to myself is I want to watch you for a little while and see where your gifts are. And I said, let's, let's pray about this and see where God God." opens that door and right now 
he's got a problem because so many college kids are coming to his house on Monday night that he's outgrown his house. And we don't know where we're going to put them. It took about a year for God to answer that prayer. That God raised someone up who's uniquely gifted with his sense of humor. He's got a real dry, witty sense of humor. He's got a hunger for God's word. He's, Lord help him, he's trying to teach through the book of Revelation right now, which is more gutsy than I would ever do. And, and he's, my own kids, I'm having to say, look, it's 1130. It's time for you to come home. Because they want to be around him because he's teaching God's word. When we have a need like that and we cry out to God, he meets it every time. The impossible. The best example I've ever heard from this text, John Piper used it. I've used it in a sermon before, but I want to close with this. And I'm going to modify. He was the one who came up with the idea. I'm going to use a personal experience. Okay, during Desert Storm, Desert Shield, there were three artillery FOs for the Marine Corps, uh, uh, two corporals and a lance corporal, that ended up getting cut off and stuck in an Iraqi town, cut off from, the US, the, from their own forces. And they had a radio, and that was it. And they got on that radio, and they told their position and said, we, we can't get out. They were actually hiding on a roof. And the Department of Defense took an aircraft carrier and turned it so that those aircraft could take off immediately into the wind. So that aircraft carrier, what does an aircraft carrier cost? Three billion dollars? They ain't cheap. And they sent aircraft to go blow that town, everything around it up. And they took a battalion of army guys and sent them to cut off any ability for the Iraqis to come in and support that group of people. And a battalion is, they probably had three or four hundred people that they moved from this mission over here for three guys to cut off any ability. And then they sent a group, a special operations team in to get them. I know that the a first marine division that was at the time in a diversionary tactic was actually moving around they diverted that division so that they could give artillery support for these special forces to come in and get those three guys they got on a prick 77 and they did that and billions of dollars worth of equipment was moved and things were shifted around so that those three guys could get out that's just like the power of prayer now what would happen those of you who served in the marine corps or in the military if they had gotten on that radio later and said, we would love it if y'all would send some pillows over here, and I haven't had a Snicker bar in a long time. Could you send me a Snicker bar? What do you think would happen to those three guys? They'd be making big rocks into little rocks for a long time. Same three guys, same radio. For one, they're in the mission, and they need assistance, and we moved billions of dollars worth of equipment to make sure they had everything that they needed. In the other case, they're using that tool that was given to them to call for room service. And that's exactly what we've reduced prayer to in our church. God has given us a tool so that while we're in the fight, we can literally call on the God that created the universe to come to our aid. We have a radio that the God that made everything said, whatever you need, I will give it to you. And we use it to call for room service. We are anemic and powerless because we don't pray. And when we do pray, 
We pray for stupid stuff. And we don't pray for things because we're in the fight. There's a war going on. The enemy craves the souls of all the people around us. In our Jerusalem, in our Judea, our Samaria, and the uttermost. He wants our kids desperately. The world is spending billions of dollars to convince them to believe a lie. Every time I do marriage counseling, when a couple comes in my office and says, we're getting a divorce unless you can fix it. And we talk about through what the issues are. Almost invariably, it's because they believe a lie of the definition of that word love. They think love is that emotional butterflies that you feel when you're dating. And the reason why they believe that is because every movie that we watch, we are told the heart wants what the heart wants. Every song that we listen to on the radio says, if loving you is wrong, I don't want to be right, baby. And so we believe the lie that billions of dollars is being spent to pump into our heads so that we will destroy our lives. Because when that cute young thing is flirting with you, it feels exciting and fun and invigorating. But in reality, it's old and dead and deadly and it will destroy you and it will destroy all the people around you but when we're in that fight if we cry out to our savior he will come save us we don't use prayer for what it was meant for and we're not in the fight and so i implore you i beg you let's use prayer for what it was meant for Let's pray for each other. That as you are in the fight, as I'm, I'm praying for, for JR and I'm praying for Dad and I'm praying for Bruce and I'm, pray, I'm praying for each one of you as I go through that silly little directory uh, that are so fun to look at the old ones. Uh, Liz brought me a bunch of old ones Sunday night and I had the best time in the world looking at all you people when you were young. You got to dye your mustache back black and then shave it where it's like that pencil thin mustache again because you were looking good, brother. but as I pray through that directory you could do the same thing I desperately need you to pray for me because the enemy knows that if I fail it affects the gospel poor uh this whole week with all that's happened at First Baptist, Brian has had three or four people come up to him at the hospital and say, I'm so sorry that your pastor got caught doing something he wasn't supposed to. He's like, wait, wait, it ain't my pastor. Not this time. <laughs> but it has a negative impact to the gospel. So let's pray for each other. Let's start out with that piece. Father God, Lord, I pray that we would pray. God, I pray that we would be a people that run to our knees. God, I pray, Lord, that we would hunger for that vitality that comes from you. That we would abide in you and your word would abide in us. Lord, next week as we look at how love is woven through this text, Lord, I pray that you would teach us, that you would grow us, 
and you would help us to see what love is. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.